I was so focused on the career ambition. One of the things I left out was what did I want for my lifestyle ambition? And that lifestyle ambition is how we want to live life. Yeah. Like how much vacation time do I want to take? How much time do I want the family with the family on a daily basis? Yeah. What time do I want to be home at the end of the night? Do I want to be reading or answering emails in the evening? All of that got ignored as this career aim became totally dominant. And once that was taken away from me, I was able to sit back and go, well, now what is it that I want? Now that I'm tabula rasa, blank slate, what do I want to draw on this chalkboard? This is Better Wealth with Caleb Williams. Paul, welcome to the show, my friend. Man, I got to tell you, I feel like I've arrived. <laughs> I'm now on the Better Wealth podcast. Some people try to get on Joe Rogan, not us. We have been lobbying to get on Better Wealth. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm the Joe Rogan for like the 20 listeners that we that we dedicate that we have every, every day. So shout out to all those listeners. Uh, just kidding. I'm I'm blown away by the by the uh, outreach and the listenership and and I really believe it's because we get people like you yeah. and I just want to give you kind of a an overview of how I met Paul and I love your name because Paul Adams is something that I can number one spell and say and not be worried that I'm going to mess it up so thank you for there having you go. I should actually thank your parents so thank you Thank you uh, to Paul Adams' parents. Um, but overall, this this is how we connected. And, and I literally, like this morning, I was like, hey, what do we want to talk about? Because you have done some incredible things, have books, Forbes, show, YouTube channel, you're a thought leader. Um, you're, you're the kind of person that when I talk to, I'm like, okay, I, I would love to have like a coaching session with you once a month about business, about how to think about money. Um, you you challenged me on something really strongly. I mean, you just got back from a six week vacation with your family, mm -hmm. and I just by saying that my blood pressure is increasing. <laughs> I'm like, oh my goodness! And we we're at different stages of of life. Um, but overall, man, I'm just excited about this. I think for for our listeners and for the people watching on YouTube, the 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 purpose of this of this conversation is we want to talk about a couple things. Number one, I want to talk about retirement being the dirty word. I think you articulate this well, and I and I want people to understand what that means. And then I also want us to start with the end in mind. And I, you have some really incredible ways that you can walk people through and help them start asking questions on what they really want. Whether you're a business owner, or whether you're whether you're someone that's in the in the working force. Like, have you ever asked yourself what you wanted? And then finally, we can look at some some business owners. And I know you have a you you have some fun things to talk about. Like, you can't retire on your balance sheet, and that is something that. Um, I, I know this is going to be packed filled of content. So if you're a business owner, if you know other people that run businesses, this is a must listen to. And this is also a must listen to for people that are saving intentionally or investing intentionally. Um, you're going to learn some incredible questions to ask yourself and some insight. So Paul, the bar set high, man. <laughs> bar set high. Welcome to the show. Well, the nice thing about a high set bar is I can always crawl underneath it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, so let, let's talk about, let, let's first of all, talk about a little bit of 
your backstory because I, I, people just know you as the guy that I respect that goes on vacation. So tell, <laughs> talk a little bit about your story and who, like what, what has made you be the person you are? And then let's translate into those three topics. Well, I think the, the thing that probably most formed me actually came before getting into the industry at all. It was being raised by, uh, my dad was a stay at home dad. And so where many people, you know, get that daily sort of uh, maternal input on a daily basis, I was raised by my dad and a bunch of his construction worker friends. <laughs> and it was great. You know, people talk about, you know, somebody's tilt in life can be, you know, they're passive aggressive or those other personality attributes. I was aggressive aggressive. I was just I was an only child, but I hung out with my dad and his buddies all the time. I didn't know what it was to not be tough, you know, get bullied in school and go gripe about it to dad. And it was like, well, if they hit you, hit them back. If they don't hit you, it's just words. Just walk away. Uh, but at the same time, my mom was our primary breadwinner working for the Department of Energy back when the Department of Energy was absolutely a good old boy's system. I grew up watching my mom get discriminated against because of her sex all through her career. And yet she never became a victim of it. Mm -hmm. What we would do, she ended up managing some men who managed her years prior. And then somebody above her in the chain would stop her career growth. And we would have to move to another part of the country. And we did that every five to seven years. Mm -hmm. But in that I got to get good at getting to know people and being useful and valuable, because I had to create a whole new community whenever we moved and got the work ethic from my mom, but also got this story from my dad that many, many, many years ago, he was given the opportunity to buy a gravel pit. Now, my dad, prior to this, had been a superintendent for one of the largest construction companies in Colorado, and he was so high in the company, the kids of the owner reported up to him. Mm. And yet that company, about two years after my dad passed on the opportunity to buy his own business, the company he worked for sold. And all they left him with was a deferred comp life insurance policy from the Hartford that he now had to fund himself, but he was unemployed and yeah. didn't have the money to fund it and had to cash it out. So all those years of work, all that year, those years of dedication had gone away. So he pressed into me that you have got to work for yourself. You can't work for anybody else. You have to work for yourself. And he ran little businesses that, you know, kind of broke even that I would ride around with him all summer in between school in. But what stayed with me was my mom's work ethic of never being a victim of the circumstances that you're in and continue to progress. And she retired as one of the highest powered women in the U.S. government if you took out all the appointed or elected officials. Now, my mom would never say that. That was one of my mom's friends told me at her retirement party, and I didn't um. know. So I think those two things influenced me tremendously. And I got into the industry as an intern with Northwestern Mutual originally. Mm. And after being there for a period of time and understanding the level of restriction that can be put on somebody when they're in a, a captive environment like that. And I went to a more open platform that allowed me to build my own brand and, and have my own voice. Right. And we built that over the years. I was a senior vice president for one of the largest firms that are affiliated with Guardian and Park Avenue Securities on the West Coast, and then ultimately moved up to Washington State to take over an office. But in that, uh, you know, politics are a bummer, and I don't play them. 
Yeah. I mean, like uh, lesson learned, I need to be in environments where I don't have to. <laughs> yeah. um, but in that, they, they decided that they didn't want me to lead that Guardian Park Avenue effort up in Washington State, despite we had generated more revenue than they had ever seen. And in 2016, they ended by contract where we built an office with 42 people. Wow. And going back after that and being able to rebuild. But this time, and I think some of what we're going to talk about is I was pursuing a career ambition first. And what I realized when they decided to terminate that contract, and now I literally had the ability to rebuild any way that I wanted, what I found was I could really build it around the lifestyle I want to have, which is part of why my family and I can spend 80 nights a year on average in the RV since 2017. It's incredible, man. It's incredible. When we talked, you, you shared with me how it's, it's, it was hard at first for you to like, let go. What, what was the, what was like the, the, the epiphany that you had as it relates to, I'm going to actually spend 80 nights a year in an RV with my family. And you're also a competitive business owner. Like you're, you're, you're doing, you're running successful businesses and building. How do you do both? Well, uh, I'll say, uh, so I'll talk about what we've taught our clients for years. I'll talk about how I still slipped into a trap and then how I backed out of it. So too often what we do, and this is the trap that I fell into, we fall into this trap of pursuing a career ambition first. Now, when I say career ambition, often people think of like, you're a business owner, you turn it off right about now because it's like, well, I don't have a career, I have a business. You still have a career. Yep. And your career is part of the identity you build and how you're known. So for me, I was pursuing this ambition of building this huge financial firm in the Pacific Northwest and being top known and all of that. And as and prior to that, when I was senior vice president for the firm in California, it was all the time building the firm, forwarding that identity and was years and years of 60, 70 hour work weeks. Mm -hmm. And I achieved things that most people in our industry had never achieved, kind of working through the ranks, going from being an expert individual into one of the top leadership roles. And yet, what I realized when I picked my head back up after all that, or as my wife said, does that mean, because it was 10 years of pursuit yeah. to build this company and build the identity it required to get the contract I yep. wanted and then get the contract I wanted and build it. She said, does that mean we wasted 10 years? Mm. And I said, no, because of what I learned, which maybe is a conversation okay. for another day. But in this journey, I was so focused on the career ambition. One of the things I left out was what did I want for my lifestyle ambition? And that lifestyle ambition is how we want to live life. Yeah. Like how much vacation time do I want to take? How much time do I want the family with the family on a daily basis? Yeah. What time do I want to be home at the end of the night? Do I want to be reading or answering emails in the evening? All of that got ignored as this career aim became totally dominant. And once that was taken away from me, I was able to sit back and go, well, 
now what is it that I want? Now that I'm tabula rasa, blank slate, what do I want to draw on this chalkboard? And what, what I discovered was going back to the roots of when I was in my mid-20s where I decided to go to a three-day work week at that time and, mm. and just really focus on what's the knowledge I could bring to my clients, not the hard work I can do in front of a computer. And now that lifestyle ambition, vacations, time off, uh, consumption, like what kind of house do I want to live in? Do I want to have horses? All those things go into that bucket. Then we can figure out what does it cost? Yeah. What's that lifestyle cost on an annual basis? Because that's important. That's that financial ambition. And that is, oh, I need to make this much money. Well, that's part yeah. one. But part two is how much more money than that do I have to make so I can reserve enough money for the future that I can be financially independent at the end of my working years. You know, Paul, I'm going to stop you there. It's super interesting because a lot of people first ask the question, their, their only metric of success, by the way, is what, what kind of, how much money can I make? What career can I go into? We, we like college is all built around this concept, mm -hmm. but it's like nobody, nobody's really asking what, it, like, what do you actually want and what does that cost? I remember, I remember seeing Tony Robbins do this on video to somebody who's like, they, he asked him like, what, what do you, what's your goal? And the, the guy said, I want to make a million dollars a year. And then, and then I just literally saw Tony Robbins, like just totally dismantle this guy because he's just like, you're just, that was the like, not very thoughtful answer because he actually asked what this person wanted and it would cost about $300,000 a year. And so the, what, what happened is this person was totally lying to himself, saying that there's this hypothetical, this is what we need to do, but at the core, wasn't actually focusing on the thing that mattered and would mm -hmm. never be successful because, you know, he wasn't answering the root question slash problem. So it's, it's interesting. How do people do this? Like, how do you walk people through? this because I think regardless of who you're listening to, like we need, like I need to go through this because I find myself on a treadmill of like, what am I, why am I doing this? Yeah. And it all starts with that figuring out what are my life aims, the stuff that doesn't have to do with business. And I find the best way for people to do this is literally narrative form. Like just write out what you want your life to look like in a year. And then what do you want your life to look like? You know, just think half a page written in, you know, word or pages, you know, you're just going to fill out half a page of saying what you want life to look like, what you want your weight to be, how much time off, how many books you're reading a year, whether or not you're married, all that stuff. One year, three year, five year, and then take a shot at 10 year just to sketch it out because now you actually have your lifestyle aims. Now, if you want to get a little more thorough, I'd say make two levels of those lifestyle aims, which is one, sufficiency. Sufficiency is going to be the amount of money that you can set aside, or sorry, the amount of money that you need to earn to pay your bills in a way that there are no untenable compromises. So an easy example of a compromise would be, uh, you know, uh, somebody goes and they're going to buy some suits and they'd really like to every two years buy five new suits, but budget wise, it's three new suits. That's not an untenable compromise. Like that's easy. You can just have three suits. So that's sufficiency. Then there's the surplus lifestyle. Yep. Now, many people listening to the show right now are probably already living in surplus. One of the benefits of sketching out your aims for sufficiency 
is that it creates a bit of an internal reset where somebody goes, well, I am in a 5,000 square foot house, but as I think about it, we'd be fine in a 3,000 square foot house. Or we, you know, we drive six figure purchase price cars, but as we think about it, like our friends already know we're successful, we could be fine with $25,000 used cars. You just get those set up in that narrative form for your aims, sufficiency and surplus for one year, three year, five year, 10 year. Then you can figure out about what those lifestyles cost mm. in today's dollars to pay for that lifestyle next month. Then you have to figure out how much needs to be set aside to be able to continue to fund that lifestyle in perpetuity yeah. when I'm no longer working. But only after doing those two things, having your lifestyle aims, having your financial aims, should you ever do planning for your career? Yeah. Should you ever do planning for your business? Like this is the, uh, this is an easy example. So when, when we bring on clients, we have a philosophy conversation where we ask no invasive personal information. People are of course free to share with us and we keep all that confidential, but we don't ask mm -hmm. any of it. We just share philosophy and values. And then if they want, they can apply to become a client. But there's a unique question on that application, which is, do you know how much capital at work will be required for you to be able to be financially independent? Hmm. That answer is no in 95% of the instances. Yeah. Now, here's the thing. When we all start working, we're in our early 20s. We've got our first office job or we started a business. Nearly everybody starts with the intent of one day I'll have enough money that I no longer have to work. That's right. Yep. Okay. And yet, literally, almost nobody has any idea even how to calculate the money, the amount of money needed from the most rudimentary perspective. Like multiply the income by 25 or divide it by 0 0.04, something that simple. Mm -hmm. They haven't been taught because our industry has been teaching them how to buy products, not yeah. how to understand money. That's right. And so literally people are aimless walking around out there. Mm -hmm. They don't have an aim for where they're going, which is one of the biggest reasons why they miss. And no wonder they get swept up and live a lifestyle that just kind of creeps its way up to their income because they didn't have an aim for the lifestyle that would satisfy them to start with. They didn't know how much it would take financially to fund it now and in the future. And then last but not least, they did their career plan based upon yes. what everybody else said. It's like being yep. swept up in a current. That's why we refer to it as the current that's running past us. Is it puts us in a position where we don't, we, we're not thinking for ourselves to satisfy our aims. We're being utilized by others to meet their aims. So Whether that's our employer, financial product salespeople, yeah. or just the marketplace as a business owner, because our customers don't care if we grind ourselves into the dirt, 70 hour work weeks, yeah. they, like it's not even on their radar. They just want the service that they're asking for. Yeah. We're so at, at better wealth ROR for us stands for return on result instead of rate of return. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Cause again, it's like, shouldn't you, shouldn't you get really clear on what you want and then do that with your life. And so it's, yes. it sounds again, it's we're, we're so aligned. Here, here's my question. Number one, do are there people that that like cannot come up with the their list? Like, what do they actually want? Like, is that hard for some people, um, or is is that is do they just need to give be given a space? And and is it usually very intuitive for them? You know, I think it's super hard for people, uh, and 
we don't sit and go through this with them. Like all we'll give them the framework. Like I just did for you. And I would bet you that maybe one in 10 clients really take it and run with it. But, but as somebody who's trying to be a coach, who's trying to offer leadership to our clients and things financial and help them meet their aims. As a coach, you can only hit people with something so hard yeah. before, instead of the thing you're telling them to do sounding like the solution, it's you telling them what to do that looks like the problem. And the quickest way for them to solve that problem is to no longer talk to you mm-hmm. or to me. And so we give them frameworks and then clients over time get into it. So one client I've talked to for years, uh, makes well north of a million dollars, had to reschedule a meeting with me this week. And he said, I realize I really want my wife in it. She hasn't been in most of the meetings the last couple of years because we've got some time. We're driving the car this next week and really talking about which of the businesses I need to sell. And what do I need to do to bring it back to balance on the family front? Because people don't treat that simple exercise of sufficiency and surplus lifestyle aims, financial aims, both today and funding for old age, and then getting into your career aims. That doesn't look like a solution until somebody's faced with the breakdown. Yeah, I I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that with our audience. Um, I, I would highly encourage you highly encourage you if you're watching this, if you're listening to this, like to pause and take some notes and do this either by yourself or with your spouse or with your family, because it's, it, it, it will be one of the most freeing things. Um, and I'm going to do this as well. I've done versions of this, but I, I've not, I've, I've just, I'm, I'm a married man now, by the way. And Congratulations. I, I, need, I need to do this with, with April and, and really be intentional about that. Uh, and it's and it's very freeing. Well, last question on this 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 subject, and then I want to talk about retirement being a dirty word. Um, if you're young, and I've I've had the pleasure of helping and and encouraging some some young superstars, and then some young kids that have a lot of potential, but don't really know what they want. And I'm telling you, like literally, don't even know where to begin. They don't know should they should go to college, community college. That like, what do you do? And how do you help someone who's 17, 18, 19 years old, maybe 20, 22? They, they, they're good. Like they want to work hard. They want to have a family someday, but they're just, they feel lost and they feel discouraged because of that. How would you mentor, encourage? What questions do you ask? Because they don't have the perspective that you have, or maybe even I have at, at the age of 25. And so that can be frustrating because everyone's saying, what do you want to do? And they're like, I don't know what I want to do. Yeah, I think one of the, so my answer is going to be a couple of fold, but one is, I think to your point, the first thing to do when you're young is just work hard at something. Now that's not because we want to spend our life working hard, but it's because of what you learn when you're working hard, like how much you won't want to do it later in life how much you won't want to put in a 60 hour work week. Like I was laying tile while still in high school. And my record was like a 65 hour work week without missing any days of school. It was like right after school till 10 o'clock at night, every night, plus like huge days on the weekend to try to earn enough money. And what I learned was watching other men on their knees, laying tile in their fifties is it's hard blasted work. And I didn't want to do that forever. 
but I knew that what I was learning there was going to be a gateway to something else. So number one, go somewhere, work hard. Second, get really philosophically grounded. Now I recommend people do that with church. Yeah. Like go, you know, uh, this'll be the, I think the 15th year I've read the Bible cover to cover. It's incredible, man. And it's, uh, my only regret in that is I didn't start earlier because it gives me a philosophical grounding in the po politics of the world and the arguments people have in holding myself accountable for the things that I've done really poorly by being a massively driven business owner and driven right over people. That without that philosophical grounding, without that spiritual grounding, I don't think I would have seen the ills of my actions. Yeah. It would have been wildly justified. And we all know really successful people who justify how they treat others. Right. And by being grounded in the Bible, it's pretty hard to justify that. And, and it puts me in a position to have to own my crap. And last but not least would be go back to the life you want to live yeah. before selecting the career path, before choosing college. Now, those things will change, but have your aim yeah. be anchored in the life you actually want to live, yeah. not in the status you want to have in society. Yeah, I love it, man. I, I, I really appreciate you just articulating this. I think this is going to be something we use for internal. A lot of our clients, I think there's some, some segments that we're going to chop up. Um, because you just articulate and I think speak to something really well. I, I, I think it balances out the Simon Sinek's of the world, start with why, and th that's good. It's amazing. But a lot of times it's like we, we get so focused on like, what should my mission to the world be? And, we, and we're it's like we're a starved baker. It's like, we're, well, let's break a bunch of bread for everyone else, but you're like not eating yourself. And so there's this balance. And I think it's, I, I love where you're, you're going about being grounded. Because at the end of the day, if you don't have a, a greater source of truth, it's you could be very unhappy and have a lot of money and not work. And and that's it, not necessarily the answer either. So thank you. Let's talk about retirement and, and it being the dirty word, because I think this will also give perspective to a lot of people. Um, I remember um, the day that I was working at working at the bank, uh, a couple came in, they wanted to retire. They were going to, this guy was going to retire next year. They had nothing in the grand scheme of things. Mm -hmm. And I had to be that, that the 21 year old Caleb had to tell this person that wanted to retire that it was, it was a fraction of what this, they thought. And I just, and I remember thinking, cause this person was miserable there. I mean, didn't like his job, like literally was just in it to, to, to punch the hours. And I was thinking about how like that put it just a, just a disgust that I had for the carrot called retirement. Mm -hmm. So talk about that. I, again, at 21, I didn't, I couldn't very articulate it. I was just like, why are we doing this in America? Like, why yeah. is this a thing? Well, uh, and I, I have a, a similar story I'll share with you. Longtime family friend. I'm 25 at the time. I'd been in the business since I was 18. Cool. I had asked this family friend several times whether or not I could look at his stuff and see if I could be of help. And he never let me do that. But then he retired and he says, I'm, I've got some money to roll over. I want you to take a look at it. And I looked at it with him and he says, yeah, it should be good. 700,000. I can take out 10% a year. And I just, I was lost for words with tears in my eyes. I looked at him. I said, you can't do that. You can't take out 10% a year. 
like none of the other pieces are in place to make that a possibility. And at most you should take out four. And it changed. And I actually said, like, I don't, I don't think I can work with you because I cannot make that happen. Yeah. And, and I wanted to intervene earlier and I couldn't. So that really left me in a good way scarred in wanting to make sure that I, from the mountaintops, that's why we have a show that we get this into people's lives, this financial knowledge, because without it, they're lost and, and they'll take a soundbite they heard 15 years ago about taking out 10% and do their planning based on it. So, but the big problem with retirement actually goes back to the way we used to use the word. You remember in your American history classes, there was never a time where it's like, oh, this inventor retired or this businessman retired. It wasn't there. Now they might change what they do. They might put somebody else in place. They might take a lot more time for themselves traveling, but there was never a word of them retiring when you read our history books. It wasn't until the really very recent times, less than a hundred years ago, that we instituted social security in this country in the mid 1930s. And that social security, the word retirement used to mean put something out of use. Like we're going to, I'm going to retire to the bedroom for the evening. I'm going to retire to the den with my scotch. We're going to retire that old horse. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say, you don't want to be the horse that's getting retired. Let's just put it That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's usually not good news for the horse. And so all of that went away and we started to use retire and apply it to human beings. So now take that position of being a highly productive young executive or being a successful business owner. None of us are pursuing a future in which we become valueless, in which we get put on a shelf, in which we are retired from society. Nobody really wants that outcome. They say they do because we live in an environment where it's like you'd be wrong to say you don't do that. And then the flip side is some people solve that saying, well, I just want to work forever. I love what I do. The trouble is on that flip side is that you don't get to choose when you're no longer compensated in the marketplace or when you're no longer valuable. The marketplace chooses that and you don't get a choice in it. So this word retirement causes people to have to pursue something yeah. that internally deep inside them, they don't want. And when we bring that up to clients, it hits them like a ton of bricks. And you're like, you're right. Yeah. I said, so what we want instead is we want definite financial independence for the sake of funding a work optional lifestyle, not retirement. You could also say financial freedom, correct? Like just mm-hmm. being a, be in a definite place where you're choosing what you want to do. Um, but is it one of those things, and this is, this is an assumption I'm making, are you going to work to the day that you die in some capacity? I, I will. Uh, and mainly because going back to my faith in the Bible is there is no biblical tenant for what I should do is one day put my feet up and be lazy, right? You know, that I should be working either industriously and in helping society in some way or helping clients or perhaps in ministry. But I don't see a day in which it's just feet up, nothing to do all day long. Take my mom, who's retired now from the Department of Energy, has been for over 10 years. And that woman is busier than anybody yeah. I know pouring into the lives of other people in her community. Cool. And that's, that's what I see as a future for us is that getting to financial independence just means I have a work optional lifestyle. Not that I don't have an obligation to do something good in the world while I'm here. And and props to you, and this is where I, I look up to you big time, is you're not waiting till you're 65 to then take eight weeks. Like no. you're, 
incorporating that into your family today. And that that's something that it's that is something maybe for part two. I, I really want to know the blueprint of how you decided eight weeks, why not nine weeks? Why not six weeks? I just I I want to know like how you decide that, how you have a good work culture. Um, and then what do you actually do? Do you check email? Do you totally check out? Like that is something that um for part two, um, it, we can maybe have another uh, interview because I, I just am very, very curious personally for that. Yeah. And I'll just take the Better Wolf Nation along for the ride. Yeah, um, I love it. So, so I'm with you. Retirement is, is the, a word that we use to pretty much put to end um, and to really, you know, it, it was not something that was, that was like something that you would look forward to. And yet, Social Security came around, we started shifting our mindset, and and then we started living longer. And now, now you could look from an, an economy standpoint, we got issues just from a macroeconomics standpoint, but then also on a micro level, um, yeah, people people's minds are a powerful thing. And there's a switch when you stop being useful and adding value and you just consume. Yeah. Um, and, and I've seen it at a micro level. Um, but I, as I, as my eyes have been open to that, I've, it's, it's been eye opening. So, um, anything else that you want to talk about on, on that front? Well, just one dig on the financial services industry while we're at it is that you think about how social security changes people's behavior and change lexicon, but by like the mid 1970s or even early 1970s, people were living a lot longer. Yep. Social Security was getting worn on by inflation. It wasn't as useful. So it wasn't going to continue the habits of Americans wanting to retire. So who took over waving the banner of retirement? The financial services industry. Yep. And that really became the dawn of them dis designing one product after another product after another product in their pursuit to democratize the participation in financial markets. But they went away from teaching people any fundamental mechanics of how to do it. Instead, it's just, oh, you've got a little bit of surplus. Here's a product you could put it in. Yeah, there, and that that might be another episode that we could talk about, like wh why the financial industry does what they do and what the ultimate goal is. And it's it's so frustrating. You and I are very aligned on this. It's so frustrating to see the hurt that comes from good people trusting a system that really doesn't have their best interest in mind and is not serving them well. And, and I, I just think a lot of times we just defer responsibility and say, if I put my money in this widget, my life will be okay. It's like, oh, I want to go down a value rant. Um, but it's just, it, yeah, I, I echo and it. Many, and many of the advisors that are out there are stuck in the same system. Some, some in our industry who think like you and I, berate those advisors, say something's wrong with them. But we had a, a client that's leaving what I refer to as a big box financial retailer uh, to, to join us as a client. And they got a little upset when they understood the fees on the mutual funds they were paying and all that once, you know, we were able to use our academic tools to expose a lot of it. And I said, it's not, it's not their fault. He is a good man but he has had nothing yeah. but financial institutions teaching him. I said, that particular company, every one of their quarterly educational events are all sponsored by mutual fund and annuity companies. Yeah. And that's the only people speaking in his world. That's all that yep. was speaking in my world when I was 
18. Yeah. It wasn't until I was like 21 that I started really paying other people to teach me about money, the people that wouldn't yeah. go teach for financial institutions. Right. And I was spending upwards of $40,000 a year for a decade to learn what I've learned. Yeah. And everybody else just kind of jumps on the train with the financial institution they're a part of and takes that learning and passes it right on to their clients with no understanding of the harm that they are unaware that they could be doing. Right. Let's 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 shift over to um, if you're a business owner, this is really going to be relevant for you about you can't retire off your business balance sheet. And yeah. I know that you deal a lot with this. And so why don't you explain that and, and, and walk this through? And, and I don't know if there's any call to actions for people that are not business owners, but I bet there is. OK, cool. Yeah, the I, I think this is uh, one thing that every executive, everybody climbing the corporate ladder actually has a huge advantage on business owners. You see, they know that they can't retire on Amazon's balance sheet. They know that they can't retire on Microsoft's balance sheet. They know they've got to build that wealth personally. But the business owner has a very unique uh, warped view and they don't know it. Uh, we talk about this in our most recent book we released earlier this year called Your Business, Your Wealth. Uh, you have to search for it very specifically on Amazon. We totally messed up in the title that it was too generic of a title. So you got to go like the third page or put in uh -huh. your business, your wealth, Paul Adams, then you can find it or Corey Shepard. So one of the things that business owners do is they're constantly looking at what they think their company is worth. And one of the biggest things they do is overvalue it. Yeah, totally. And, and it's very simple. You know, if you're going to sell a company, for four to six times EBITDA, which in most industries would be pretty good. That means if you're making, just to make it simple, if you're making $400,000 a year, then you might have a shot at selling the company for 2.4 million. After tax, you net 2 million, you can invest that and maybe get $80,000 a year. So even if you have 2.4 million on your balance sheet from the business, the problem is it doesn't translate to anywhere near the amount of income that you we're making from the business all these years. And it becomes like a morphine drip in the <laughs> veins of the business owner. And yeah. when I say morphine drip is it tranquilizes them into inaction. Mm. And that tranquilization keeps them from doing things like just, you know, setting aside 20% of their, their income into assets. Like if every business owner just set aside 20% of what they took out of the business and bought assets that were not the business, and that could be mutual funds, it could be whole life insurance, it could be rental properties, it, that part isn't as important. Those are efficiency things. Yep. In this case, they don't do that. And what's the biggest reason most businesses don't sell is that the owner found out what they can actually get in the marketplace and realizes that they can't sell it. Talk to any business broker or M&A person it is the most often reason why deals fall apart last minute. And so that business owner is tricked into thinking that they have a retirement asset and the value of the business. Now, an extreme example is we have a client who I will say nothing about other than 30,000 foot view. So it doesn't give away the person who had a legitimate offer for their business of $26 million four years ago. With COVID and with everything that's gone on, that business is now not worth anything. Couldn't find a buyer and is being wound down. 
Now, the thing that is the saving grace for this person is they have been setting aside money out of their income all these years, and they have as much or more money on their personal balance sheet. But not for that, they would be going $26 million business to living off social security if it had it not been for that. And that is most often the circumstance because those people fall out of our regular view. Yeah, you, you don't see them anymore because they don't go to your church. They don't live in your neighborhood. They can't be a member of your country club. They just sort of, oh, have you heard from Tom? And well, no, I understand he sold his business and moved to Gilbert, Arizona. Not that there's yeah. anything wrong with Gilbert, Arizona. <laughs> <Yeah>. just, <laughs> Shots fired. Yeah, just no longer in that community. And yeah. that the fact that business owners, and that's what got us picked up by Forbes and Small Business yeah. Trends and Inc. back in 2016 was this idea that it's not either or. I think that's the problem the financial services industry has and the business owner community has with the financial services industry. Somebody comes in, pitches a mutual fund and says, you should put it here instead of back in your business. But your business is the highest rate of return asset that you have until it's not. Until it's not. And so when yeah. it's not, and we've all known the person had a very successful business, got it down to work in two, three days a week. Like I only see clients two days a week. And yet something occurs. They lose a key employee. There's a regulation change. Something changes in the marketplace. And we've all known that person who had two or three years of the life of Riley and had to dive back in full force to try to rebuild or save the business because something went wrong. Yeah, That financial independence needs to be transferred to your personal balance sheet. The sale is just the final portion of it. Yeah, But over the years, we need to make sure we build our personal balance sheet, not for any either or reason of it's better to put it on my personal balance sheet or the business, only because we have to have the money on our personal balance sheet. That is non-optional. Yeah. So now it's just how much do we want to direct to our personal balance sheet as a part of our journey of growing? And for those of you who are those employees and executives, there is one way we see them fall into the same trap. Imagine what we would say to somebody who had, it was working for a major company and they have four and a half million dollars of that company's stock and yeah. maybe 300,000 of other assets. Yeah, yeah. Nearly everyone would say, you need to at least get some of that money away from the company that you work for. Cause that's where your income is coming from. Yeah. And it's where your largest asset is. Like that is not a good combination yeah. to have. And being a strategy of only going to keep this much in my company stock and the rest is going to go on my personal balance sheet somewhere else away from where I derive my income. Because we would all tell that person they would be crazy to just totally, and by the way, it does work out for some. And this, my one final philosophical rant, Silicon Valley goes out of their way to trick us into thinking that we can own their stock and get those kind of returns. Haven't you ever wondered why we hear about all the Facebook millionaires, mm -hmm. all the Microsofties from the nineties and all that? Why do, why do they get in the press? Well, it's because these companies are talking about them and all the wealth they've created and trying to translate that to the individual. That individual cannot create the kind of wealth in Tesla that the early employees at Tesla created because they took it as grants, lottery tickets, if you will, for working there. And of all the companies tried to be Tesla, there's one. All of them that tried to be Facebook, there's one. Yeah. And there are we don't see, other yeah, we don't see all the ones that went out of business and all their life savings. Yeah. Yep. And it's a big part of what supports these companies' stock prices. Yeah. So 
don't get tricked into thinking that you can make money on the company workforce balance sheet permanently. Yeah. You can certainly be granted awards and, but now you have to have financial strategy after that. And same for the business owner. If you have it all wrapped up in the business balance sheet, you got to set up a strategy where you're now going to take and carve off a certain part of your income and start buying other assets that aren't the business. Paul, this is this has been a fascinating conversation. I, I think what what we do as well as you is we look at cash flow and really cash flow is the metric that matters. And it's like you you could have a two two point five million dollar business, but at the end of the day, if you're making four hundred thousand dollars a year. Mm -hmm. that business is actually worth a, a lot more to you from a cash flow perspective than what you could sell it. And it's, it's, it's interesting when you start showing people from a cash flow now and in the future, how investment strategies could potentially change because shouldn't they back up current and future cash flow? And so again, this will not be the last time you're on the show. I, I end all the interviews with, with what I call the legacy question. Mm. The legacy question goes like this. If this is your last day on earth, and you're with the people that you love the most, and you can't give them any of your books, can't give them any any of the, your videos or podcasts, but you can give them one last conversation. What are you going to make sure to share in that conversation? This, uh, even having listened to your podcast, uh, this one catches me off guard having it asked of me. Uh, I think one last piece of advice is I would, I would say treat, I, I spent many, many years as the quintessential type a huge, you know, like the big freighter moving through the water and I could get things done, but I created an emotional wake behind me yeah. for, uh, at least two decades of my career. Um, and it wasn't until I really grounded in what, what does the Bible tell me, or what does Jesus teach me about treating people and how I should treat them? I allowed my version of what I thought career pursuit was, what I thought marriage needed to look like, all of that, and had a tremendous breakthrough in January, 2020, just before the pandemic that changed how I interact with people and how I treat my spouse and children. And my wife said to me partway through the lockdowns in 2020, she said, I am so happy to be quarantined with you. And I'm afraid of what it would have been like to be quarantined with the old Paul. And so if I could offer my children and my family, one thing would be to move through life and treat others the way that we'd be taught by our faith to treat others instead of the way the world teaches us to treat others. Paul, you are a phenomenal human being, and I really appreciate the authenticity, the honesty, the insights about purpose. Like, what do you, what, what life do you actually want to live? And the actual practical questions, the um, talking and exposing retirement for what it is, and then talking about the importance of of cash flow the importance of not just putting all your eggs in one basket and then also just um, coming full circle and, and talk about the, the personal growth that you've gone through um, and sharing your faith along the way. How do people stay in touch with you? How do they get a hold of what you're up to? And I, I can tell you this, this won't be the last time that you're on the show and you got my mind working in a couple couple areas that, I, that I'm sure we're going to have follow-up conversations about. 
Yeah, you bet. Um, well, one thing that we've discovered over time is we end up with uh, a decent amount of financial advisors that listen to our show to get techniques, yeah. strategies, and narratives that they can utilize for their clients, which we welcome. Um, so uh, people can go to yourbusinessyourwealth.com. That's uh, our main web address or SFG, like Sound Financial Group, way.com, W-A-Y. Uh, find me on LinkedIn is probably the most prevalent social media that I'm on, uh, about 12,000 followers. So Paul Adams located in the Seattle area. And then you can find us on some of the other platforms under at Ask Paul Adams. Paul, thank you so much. I appreciate you. And um, I hope you have a great rest of your day. Yeah, thanks for the, both the time and the way you do such an amazing job, not just of honoring me, but extracting some of the best from myself and other guests. Thank you so much for listening to the Better Wealth Podcast. It would mean the world to me if you could hit subscribe, leave a review, and share this with the people that you know and love.